Hello, this is episode 33 of The Case Against with Gary Meese. We're continuing to look into the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, I do have some other new original content about matters, cases not involving the West Memphis 3 in the works. Uh, but as always, <laughs> there's always... I, to make sure I get this stuff right, it takes research, and research takes time, and writing takes time. And frankly, I've got other things going on besides podcasts and West Memphis 3 that I'm not unhappy about, but that stuff takes up time as well. Uh, so, pardon me if I'm being a little slow on getting these podcasts out. Uh I, I have done 33 episodes, and we've got more coming, so I'm, I'm not stopping. Uh, and the, the case is essentially going nowhere at this point until something happens at some point. And maybe that everything just fades off into obscurity at some, at some point. I haven't seen it happen yet, but, you know, it could. Proclaim justice goes poof. Damien... Damien's career as a ceremonial magic doesn't pay the rent, so somebody has to go back to work doing what they were actually trained to do, and Damien sits at home and watches horror movies all day. I I, I don't know. Uh, I you know I'm not expecting some major miraculous Perry Mason moment. Uh, in court or out of court. I don't see anything going back to court, but out of court where somebody just miraculously starts confessing to their involvement in the crime. But, it, you know, it could happen. You sort of hope it does. Jesse's been known to confess before many, many times, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. He might start again if he had a sufficient motive, if he can get his thoughts together well enough, which is another questionable aspect to the case. Uh, everybody involved, with, as time goes on, becomes more unreliable in terms of what, what they remember, what they know, what they're able to actually say about this, relying on their memory alone, which is why going back to the records is especially important, and that's what we're doing here today we're going to be looking at the confession the June 3rd 1993 confession of Jesse Miskelly Jr. I laid up the laid out the circumstances leading up to him giving confession already in previous episodes uh, we're actually going to go delve into the confession a very controversial aspect to the case today I'm doubt seriously if I'm going to make it all the way through the confession. It's, it's quite long and it's very involved and I, it, I, I, I'm, there's going to be some sort of natural break point and I'll stop and I'll resume it again in the next episode, hopefully. If I don't, unless I throw out one of these new original things. And, um, I want to say just briefly that the, this case involves um, the murder of 
and Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers on 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. They were three eight-year-olds. Their bodies were found bound, nude, bound, uh, very battered, and in a, in a muddy ditch. Two of the boys were cut up. Uh, Christopher Byers, in particular, was sexually mutilated. Uh, Stevie Branch had horrible wounds on his face, and the beatings that they these boys suffered were horrors in and of themselves. But there was more to it. There was more to it than just just that, and just that would have been more than enough. Uh, you know, they were beaten, they were drowned, they were stabbed. At least two of them were. Uh, Christopher Byers bled to death. I've thrown out the idea that uh, Eccles was almost certainly aware. I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have been aware of the concept, given that he, his hanging around libraries, studying up on all this stuff. And he, know, he wasn't just a casual dabbler. That uh, pagan, pagan ritual... Uh, that the Wiccans were drawing from included what was known as the threefold death, which was pick out a certain favored party, like a prince or something, take them out to a bog someplace, strangle them, hit them in the head, and drown them. That's what they did to the pagan princes when the, they wanted some favor from the gods. It doesn't sound that different than what went on with these th poor little boys. And Eccles was very, very familiar with all this stuff, even back then. He was bragging about how much he knew. And the only time he stops bragging about it is when it stops being convenient. Okay, uh, anyway, the, the boys were killed on May 5th, 1993. Uh, a month later, they still, almost a month later, they still hadn't had any arrests, but Damien Eccles had been cited at the scene. He'd given conflicting alibis. He'd failed polygraph. Uh, he had a friend who claimed that uh, Eccles confessed to him. Uh, he gave him, given some very, very incriminating answers to, to police interviews until he clammed up and refused to cooperate anymore. So for some very good reasons, he was a prime suspect. <coughs> Excuse the cough. I hope this doesn't start up. Uh, my throat's actually feeling pretty good today. Um... Yeah, well, I thought I, I had something else in my mind there, but as all, so often happens anymore, it just sort of went away. So I will just commence reading from my book, uh, Where the Monsters Go, the title, which is direct, taken from a quote by Damien Eccles, who desired to go where the monsters go. And that's the first chapter. And the title of the chapter 
is a direct quote from Jesse Miskelly Jr. I saw Damien hit this one boy real bad, and then he started screwing them and stuff. Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s controversial first tape-recorded confession began with establishing that he had been informed of his rights. Among the many controversies surrounding the case are claims that he was not sufficiently informed of his rights. Now, I'm going to be reading from this transcript. I'll try to be as true to what was actually written as I can express verbally. Uh, Jesse Miskelly's not an educated person in any sense of the word, and the police sometimes make some grammatical errors. The transcriptionist got things wrong. I'm, I'm got misspellings and that sort of thing wrong. Didn't understand what they were talking about. Tend to put tend tended to put in wicker for Wiccan, even when the person that she was that was being quoted almost certainly knew what a Wiccan was and that it was not a wicker. However, uh, and I, I, I did do some minimal editing and putting this in the book, not to change things, but just simply condense a whole lot of, took out a whole lot of uh-huhs, uh-huh, yeah, okay. In other words, a lot of comments from, say, Brian Ridge, the detective, doing the interview, when Miskelly starts talking, you know, you want to keep them talking, and it seems appropriate and natural to make these little comments, but unless they're highly relevant, in other words, I'm not going to put uh-huh in here, every, even though it's on the, in the transcripts, I'm not going to put uh-huh in here, and I'm not going to repeat them here just because they're in the transcript. However, if you want to look at the full transcript compared to what I've written, if you don't think I've if you think I've somehow changed what was the meaning of something by leaving something out, and that's not the case. But if you want to, th if you want to think that, then I encourage you to go read Jesse Miskelly's confession. In fact, I would really encourage you to go read all of Jesse Miskelly's confessions. And in fact, I would further, and you can find those at CalhanMySite.com. I would further encourage you to actually watch. Uh, Miss Kelly's confessions on YouTube. They're there. There's a lot of other material on YouTube that's also there, at least the last time I checked. I haven't checked lately, and I can't give you a channel, but, you know, you know how to do a search. You can find it. If you really want to find it, you can find it. And you can compare and see and see if this is any if there's a slightest gleam of misrepresentation on my part of what was actually said. Now, I'm gonna start off quoting from uh, Brian Ridge, who was the de lead detective on the case. Uh, this is Detective Brian Ridge of the West Memphis Police Department, currently in the detective division of the West Memphis Police Department. Conducting an investigation of the triple homicide case file 
9305 <laughs> Much has been made of this case file number. Did somebody tinker with it? Maybe they did. Do I particularly care? No. But, you know, I think it was, I, I tend to think it just happened to be a coincidence, but you can, I, I'm willing to be proved wrong. I don't really care. It's not relevant to, not relevant to whether th these guys are guilty or, or innocent or not. But if you want to make a federal case out of whether 0666 was part of the satanic panic going on, feel free to do so. Now back, back to Brian Ridge. Currently in the office with Jesse Lloyd Muskelly Jr., date of birth 71075. Uh, as you can see, he's... 17, but he was about to turn 18, so he was not just some little child at this point. Education, ninth grade. The place, detective division. Today's date is 06-03-93. The time is 2.44 p.m. Present in the interview is Inspector Gary Gitchell and Jesse Miskelly. Jesse, in front of me, I have a rights form, and it has your signature at the bottom of it. Is that your signature? Miskelly, yes, sir. Ridge, okay, well, we are informing you that we are Detective Sergeant Mike Allen and Detective Brian Ridge uh, and Detective Sergeant Mike Allen is the one who read that read this form to you earlier. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Ridge, and I was here when he read it to you. Yes, sir. Ridge, all right, we are police officers of the West Memphis Police Department. We are conducting an investigation for the offense capital murder, cap for the offense capital felony murder, which was committed on or about 5050593. Before we ask you any questions, you must know and understand your legal rights. Therefore, we warn and advise you that you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. Ridge, are those your and those are your initials on the line in front of that statement? Yes. Ridge, okay, anything you say can be used against you in court. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Ridge, and those are your initials. Yes, it is. Ridge, all right, you have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions and to have him with you during questioning. Do you understand that? Miss Kelly, yes, I do. Ridge, and those are your initials. Yes, it is. Ridge, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you before any questions, if you wish, at no cost to you. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Ridge, and those are your initials. Yes, it is. Ridge, and if you decide you want to answer questions now without a lawyer present, you will still have the right to stop answering at any time. Do you understand? Yes, I do. Ridge, those are your initials. Yes, it is. Ridge, you're up here on your own free will. You came up here to answer some questions, and basically we found out some information during that questioning. Is that correct? Yes, yes, sir, I did. Ridge, at the bottom, okay, at the bottom of the form is a waiver of rights. It says, I've read this statement of my rights, and I understand what my rights are, and I'm willing to make a statement and answer questions. I do not want a lawyer at this time. I understand and know what I am doing. 
No promises or threats have been made to me, and no pressure or force has been used against me. Is all of that correct? Yes. Ridge, okay, and you signed the bottom of the form. Yes, I did. Ridge, witnessed by Michael Wayne Allen and myself, Detective Brian Ridge. Now, I wouldn't have quoted all that ordinarily. I would have just said they read him as rights. If I may have done that in my condensed version of the book, uh, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. I have three books. Blood on Black, Volume 1, Where the Monsters Go, Volume 2, and a condensed, combined, re slightly revised version uh, the Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All three books are available on uh, Amazon in Kindle format and also in print format. Um, obviously, the condensed, combined version is less of an investment than the uh, two larger volumes. And I, I think it covers the, 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 the facts sufficiently. But because people make claims that, oh, poor Jesse, they didn't read him his rights. Well, yeah, they did. They read it several times. And Jesse was also quite familiar with the rights because he'd been arrested before. Uh, in fact, he was arrested just a month or two before this. Uh, I think it was in March. He had been arrested for assaulting a, a young girl, I think an eight-year-old, hitting her in the head with a brick. Maybe she was nine. Maybe he didn't specialize just in assaulting eight-year-olds. Maybe brave Jesse, when he beat up younger children, sometimes he, he didn't discriminate. He beat up a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old, and then he helped kill three eight-year-olds. He was not that fussy about who he was beating up, as long as they were smaller and female and, you know, uh, not that the boys, were, these boys were female, but, you know, they, had, they, were, they were children in every sense of the word. Jesse was not a child. He was a month away from being an 18-year-old and doing, having as much freedom as any 18-year-old. Yeah, I hope I made the point here that the idea that Miskelly was deprived of his rights, that he was confused, that the police terrorized him into giving these statements, all that's a bunch of bunk. Did they use some pretty skillful techniques to elicit the truth out of him? Yeah, they did. You know what? nothing wrong with that would it pass the test of how they do things today maybe not though you know i've seen enough confessions on tape uh, on youtube and so forth much more contemporary confessions they didn't seem like they were really doing that much different now we're going to be reading into this and i will stipulate once again that there are some questions that do appear to be leading questions and Jesse assents to some of these, but by no means do the police dictate all the facts of the case and just 
Jesse just mindlessly mutters, "Yeah, that's what happened." That, that that that's not what you, that's not what we're going to see in this confession. There are problems in the confessions that are constantly cited by supporters. The two two largest being uh, the times of day that Jesse Miskelly cites, and I will say right off the top before we get into it, those problems are real. The police recognized they were real. Uh, Judge Powell Rainey recognized they were real. Gary Gitchell and Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell went back in to talk to Miss Kelly after this uh, taped episode was over to clear up exactly what times they were talking about, which Miss Kelly readily did. Um, and had, had seemingly given up the, you know, the, the, the stuff about the times comes up ver- very early in the confession. And, you know, you kind of get the impression that oh, he thought Miskelly not being smart, but thinking he's he's going to outsmart the cops. He admits later that he just was trying to mislead them somewhat, which conf- people who confess tend to do that. They tend to minimize their own involvement. They tend to fudge on details. They tend to not tell the truth even while they are confessing. And uh, we'll add to this to the fact that Miskelly was drunk, extremely drunk at the time of the assault and under what had to have been a tremendous amount of stress, which creates distorted perceptions and people who are involved, <coughs> people who are not chemically impaired and are involved in much less traumatic. There's a trauma going on here even for the assaulters, for the killers. There's, assuming that Damien and Jason are even capable of being bothered by such things, and it's questionable that they actually are. But you get the impression Miskelly at least was bothered by this. All the evidence suggests that he was bothered by his involvement in this, these murders. Jason and Damien, nah, they, they never seemed to bother them a whole lot. But Miskelly, yeah. And uh, he was undergoing a great deal of stress at the time. Uh, just by participating and witnessing what he, doing what he did and seeing what he saw. Uh, and I, we can go dig up some research on all that if you, if you don't take my word for it, but it, the, all the facts would support that. Anyway, Ridge launched into questioning. Okay, Jesse, let's go straight to that date, 05-05-93, Wednesday, early in the morning. You received a phone call. Is that, is that correct? Uh, yes, I did, Ridge. And who made that phone call? Jason Baldwin. Ridge, all right, what occurred and what did he talk about? Now, admittedly, uh, Ridge sets up the time and talks about the phone call. He doesn't tell him who made the phone call, and he leaves it open about who, uh, what occurred and what did they talk about. Miss Kelly 
says, he called me and asked me if I could go to West Smith with, with him, and I told him, no, I had to go, I had to work and stuff. He told me that he had to go to West Memphis, so him and Damien went, and then I went with him. That's a little confusing, but that's what he says. All right. Uh, Ridge says, all right, when? Wednesday. Ridge, all right, when did you go with them? Now, notice here, he's not trying to lead him. This is a case where, he, I mean, he already mentioned Wednesday morning. He said, uh, he didn't say, did, did you? what time did you go that morning? Or what time did you go that afternoon? He didn't try to set the time. He said, all right, when did you go with them? Miss Kelly, that morning. There's no evidence that this happened in the morning. And Ridge, for some reason, says, 9 o'clock in the morning? I guess he's a little surprised at this answer. Now, according to Miss Kelly's later statements, he was attempting to deceive police on the times. Miss Kelly said, Yes, I did. I went with them and then... And Ridge kind of blows off the, the business with the time at this point. They get into it later. Gitchell, Gary Gitchell was there. He says, now, were you in a car? Whose car were y'all in? It sure sounds like prompting to me. And poor, semi-retarded Jesse Miskelly, having heard that maybe he was in a car, maybe he was supposed to be telling the police he was in a car in a supposedly concocted narrative, Really should have come up with, you know, some more suspects in a car and uh, explanation of how all that came about. Because Gitchell says, now, you were you in a car? Whose car were y'all in? But, you know, Miskelly ignored the prompting, if you want to call it that, about travel by auto. And he says, we walked. We went up to Robin Hood by a blue beacon truck wash, a little patch of woods. Now, so far, he's exactly described what's there. There's Robin Hood Hills. There's the Blue Beacon Truck Wash, which is essentially right next to it. And it is a little patch of woods. When I was there, I saw Damien hit this one boy real bad. And then uh, he started screwing them and stuff. And then... Uh, It's still early in the confession, and you get the impression, I get the impression, maybe you do too, that Miskelly at this point is certainly willing to just, like, hey, throw all the blame on Damien. Uh, he did these bad things, and let's get this over with so I can get out of here. Ridge, all right, you got in front of you a picture that was taken out of the newspaper, I believe. It's got three boys, and these are the three boys that were killed on that date in Robin Hood Hills. Okay, which one of these three boys is it you say Damien hit? The third picture, which will be, Miss Kelly says, Michael Moore. Gitchell, this boy right here, obviously they're talking about the photo. Yeah, Gitchell. <laughs> All right, that's uh, the buyer's boy. That's who you are pointing at. And uh, Miss Kelly answers yes. 
Miskelly didn't have the names right and never was diligent about differentiating Christopher and Stevie. Toward the end of his many confessions, he admitted he couldn't say who was who. Despite naming Chris as Michael, his description of Eccles' attack accorded with his description of the salt. In other words, he might have called Chris Byers Michael Moore, <coughs> but in fact, that seemed, that is who he, based on the photo, but he picked out Chris, Chris Byers as the one that Damien attacked in the photo despite the wrong name, and he later describes Byers is the one who uh, uh, that Damien focused his assault on. So it's not inaccurate. He, I mean, he got it's inaccurate in the sense that he got the name wrong, which kind of goes to show, you know, I mean, he was involved in the killings. This has been thrown out in the community for weeks. And even a somebody who was casually involved, just sort of casually involved in following the news on this, might have been able to differentiate differentiate between the three boys. But one of the killers didn't care enough to even know, and never did apparently care enough to really differentiate between the three boys. To him, they were just three boys, with the possible exception of Michael Moore. <laughs> which is funny, he gets the name wrong. And Michael Moore is the one he primarily insult, assaulted. Uh, let's see, where were we? Okay, Ridge. Okay, so you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head, right? Uh, Ridge, what, and what did he hit him with, Miss Skelly? He hit him with his fist and bruised him up real bad, and then Jason turned around and hit Stevie Branch and started doing the same thing. Then the other one took off. Michael Moore took off. And at this point, he doesn't seem to have any trouble identifying Michael Moore. And so I chased him and grabbed him and hold him till they got there, and then I left. And as we're going to see all through this confession, Miskelly is very anxious to get himself off the scene as soon as possible. But he's already essentially convicted himself by the fact that Michael Moore took off running, running desperately for his life as he was watching his friends being brutally beaten. And Jesse Miskelly had no problems with chasing him down, dragging him back. Uh, and that story he just told, which uh, was not prompted by anything with, uh, what did he hit him with, it was an open-ended question, and, and Miss Kelly says, with his fist. He didn't say, uh, what, did he hit him with a stick, or did he not hit him with a stick, or did he hit him with his fist? Miskelly's telling the story here. It's not coming from the police. And all these details about Michael Moore taking off running, Eccles being the first one to get into the assault with his attack on Chris Byers, Jason, Jason jumping in and attacking uh, Stevie Branch. 
it's all this is all very consistent with the crime scene. It's very it there's echo Biskelly gets the some of the identities confused from time to time, but essentially this, he's telling the same story over and over and over again through his five or six or eight or how many confessions you want to name, but uh, at least fi- at least five official sort of confessions. And if you want to ignore all those and say, well, he's ignore all those and rationalize them all away, then go ahead. It doesn't mean that he didn't make these statements, and it doesn't mean that he's not guilty. Uh, the story did continue to be consistent with later versions, except for the f- <laughs> Miss Kelly leaving, which he changes even the course of this. But, you know, he wanted to be off the scene. The interrogators pressed on. Without promptings, Miss Kelly supplied the details that Baldwin had focused on Stevie while Miss Kelly chased down Michael. In other words, they're, they're not di- dictating this whole story to him. They didn't dictate where Blue Beacon was. They didn't dictate where Robin Hood Hills was. They didn't dictate to him it was a little patch of woods. And we're supposed to believe he's so mentally deficient that he really, it's amazing he can even walk and talk or is, is allowed to roam, was allowed to roam free outside without adult supervision. Yet we're supposed to believe he was able to absorb all these details in a in a an emotionally wrought, uh, relatively short interrogation session prior to giving this taped confession. You know, let's be consistent here. Either Miskelly is not smart enough to be able to absorb all these details, and he's not being fed these details by police, or he's, or he's telling the truth. And as best he can with his somewhat limited intelligence, or he's really just a really smart fellow who managed to absorb all these details and spit them back to the police in pretty good order, and then consistently did so in confession after confession after confession. Make up your mind, people. What is it? Is Miskelly really smart, or is he really not that smart? You can't have it both ways. And he doesn't have to be smart or stupid to tell essentially the same story over and over again. Okay, uh, Ridge. Okay, now when this, when he hit the first boy, where are they at when he hits him? Are you in the woods? You're on the side of Big Bayou or out in the field? Where were you at? Okay, now... Ridge gives him a choice. You could be in the woods. You could be on the side of the big bayou. You could be out in the field. And then he has the open-ended question, where were you at? That's not a, a being fed a narrative. And Miss Skelly's answer. Understand he was given many choices. Miss Skelly's answer. I was in the woods. He picked the woods. Ridge didn't dictate the location of the killings to him. He told Ridge where the murders occurred. Ridge, in the woods. Okay, you've been down there in those woods before. Can you describe me what's in those woods? What's the location where you were? 
Miskelly's response is, uh, Ridge, is there a path that you go down? Uh, down a little path. <coughs> and you can see here, there is a lead, you can, I'm not going to argue, it's a somewhat leading question, is there a path you go down? And uh, Miss Kelly's response, uh, down a little path. Well, his prior response was, uh. So Ridge is trying to elicit an intelligible response from this. I'm trying to not use an insulting term. A less than intelligent fellow. Uh, down a little path. And then Ridge asks, all right, where does that path go to? Now that's a pretty open-ended question. He acknowledges there's a path, but he doesn't say, does the path lead out to somewhere? Does it go from here to there, naming these locations? No, he doesn't. And Miss Skelly's response is, it leads out there close to the field, close to the interstate. Now, there's a little path through there. Damien Eccles, uh, that this is correct. Essentially, Miskelly gave a correct description here, an accurate description of the the little path that went through there. There was a field that was behind. Well, there's a couple of fields. There was a field on the other side of of uh, the woods from the uh, from the Blue Beacon, and then there's a field that's behind the Blue Beacon. It sort of goes through the woods and up up through through the Blue Beacon parking lot. It stops being a path when it hits the parking lot, obviously. And uh, Damien Eccles went up and down that path by his own testimony. He went up and down that path several times a week. Of course, Damien's not the one confessing here. But the point being is, here's, a, here's an accused killer who's intimately familiar with these woods, with this path, with this location. We might even argue he's intimately familiar with who frequents the woods since he went through there so often and was known to hang out in there and had lived there close to there as a child. He lived just across the way in the Mayfair Apartments as a child. He knew the woods. This was not some foreign location to him. And Miss Kelly was familiar enough to say, here's the path. And it leads out there close to the field, close to the interstate. You can look at aerial footage and, and uh, photos from that time, and you can see the path is there, as described. Uh, close to the, the interstate, it's really referring to the uh, service road, but it, the service roads run parallel. To, there's a service road on either side of this of this conjoined interstate that runs by these these woods and the service road service road runs directly past the woods and blue beacons right off the service road or was right off the service road small over there but um uh, so the interstate is essentially right there you could even, it's very easy to see even the service road as being part of the interstate since it essentially, essentially it's just an exit road off the interstate or an entry road off the interstate 
with some extra pavement thrown in so you'll visit the fine establishments located up and down along that strip of West Memphis, Arkansas. And now let's go back to Ridge. Ridge, when he hits the first boy and then Jason hits another boy and one takes off running, where does he run to? Miss Kelly. That one, he runs out, out the park, and I chased him and grabbed him and brought him back. Uh, it's not a park, but a lot of kids referred to it that way, apparently. Ridge, which way does he go? I mean, does he go back towards the where the houses are? He's going to the Blue Beacon. Is he going out toward the fields? Where is he running to? Okay. Ridge is giving it. Once again, he's not dictating. He is not dictating. They've already established that the Blue Beacon's there. So it's not feeding him information. But uh, he, uh, the, the, essentially what you have is you had the Blue Beacon on the west side of the woods. There's some fields on the east side of the woods. Uh, also up along the service road, by the service road. And then across the 10-mile bayou over a pipe bridge were uh, the houses of the neighborhood where the three boys lived. And the way the three boys would have gotten to the woods would have been across the pipe. And they were seen headed in that direction by Brian Woody around 6.30 or so that evening. At least he saw three little, he saw some boys going in there. I'm not sure he was able to actually identify. I don't think he was, I'd have to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure he didn't, wasn't able to say, oh yeah, those were, I saw Michael, Chris, and Stevie, but he saw three little boys going to the woods about that time that we can safely presume were Michael, Chris, and Stevie. Uh, so, given the choices, and he's given choices, Miss Kelly says, he was asked, where is he running to? The blue, the houses, the blue beacon, the fields. Where is he running to? Miss Kelly says, towards the houses. And Gitchell, type, Gitchell pipes in. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I, I read... I, I'm not trying to be cute with that. I just it just popped in because I was looking at pipe when I said this. But Gitchell said, "Ask where the pipe is that goes across the yards," and that is somewhat leading, right? Uh, Miss Kelly, yes, he ran out there, and I caught him and brought him back, and I took off. And Miss Kelly's ready to be gone again. Now Ridge says, "Okay." And when you came back a little bit later, now. Are all those three boys, now are all three boys are tied? Now that's, admittedly, that's a little bit misleading because Miss Kelly hasn't talked about the boys being tied up at this point. Uh, and almost hilariously, except for the context, Miss Kelly says, yes, and I took off and run home. Ridge, all right, have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? 
Now, here's a thing where he's suggesting a scenario. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? Now, the easiest answer is say, oh, well, you know, when they were describing how, if I were, if you want to take this theory that Miss Kelly's being fed a story, well, and, uh, you know, I don't really remember, but uh, since they're saying their clothes were, their clothes were on, I guess I better say their clothes were on. What does Miss Kelly say? No, they had them off. Ridge, they had already gotten them off, and all he's doing is just affirming what Miss Kelly said. When he hit the first boy, when he first hit the boy, when Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Again, an open-ended question. Miss Kelly, yes. Ridge, all right, when did they take their clothes off? Miss Kelly, Right after they beat up all three of them, beat them up real bad. Ridge, beat them up real bad, and then they took their clothes off? Yes, and then they tied them. Yes, he doesn't say yes. He's just, Ridge is affirming what... Uh, he'd I, he'd asked, uh, he got an affirmative answer from uh, Muskelly about taking the clothes off. They got beaten up and then the clothes were taken off. Muskelly says yes, and Ridge is reaffirming that that's what happened. Now, you could t- again, you could take this as Muskelly failing to pick up on the cues that he was supposed to say the clothes, they were wearing their clothes when they were tied up, but he doesn't say that. Then Miss Kelly ran with the narrative. Then they tied them up, tied their hands up. They started screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff. I'm going to stop right there. Nobody, at, at the, up to this point, nobody, the police haven't said, did they tie their hands up? Miss Kelly says they tied their hands up. Did the police say, they start, did they start screwing them and stuff? That's not coming from the police. That is Miss Kelly saying they started screwing them and stuff. Cutting them and stuff. Did the police say, were they cutting them and stuff? That's not coming from the police. That's coming from poor, ignorant, know-nothing Jesse Miskelly, who was there and knew the facts and was presenting them to the police and a somewhat occasionally dishonest but somewhat forthcoming way. And he says they started... Then they st- tied them up, tied their hands up. They started screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff. And I saw it and turned around and looked. And then I took off running. He's ready to be gone again. <coughs> he keeps changing the time frame on when he left, but he wants to make sure he's out of there before anything really serious happens. Ha ha. The, the, the serious stuff happened whenever he chased down. Michael Moore. In fact, the serious stuff happened when he agreed to this uh, viciously insane plan to go to West Memphis and beat up some boys a couple of days before. I went home. Then I took off running. I went home. Then they called me and asked me, 
How come I didn't stay? I told him I just couldn't. Ridge, just couldn't stay. Miss Kelly, I couldn't stand it to see what they were doing to them. Uh, once again, I'm going to suggest that while well, there's no evidence that have, uh, Eccles and Baldwin have anything like a normal human conscience, Miss Kelly probably does, may not be well developed, and he's a vicious little thug, and I, I'm sure he's not a highly... <coughs> I doubt that there's much to commend him in terms of morality, but he's not devoid of conscience, apparently. Uh, and his, his confessions consistently had him refusing to participate in the cuttings and molestation as if he's drawing the line there. Though, he did beat Michael Moore nearly to death, to the point that Michael would have died from the beating administered by Jesse Muskelly. I'm not suge suggesting that he's, once again, that he's of high moral conscience or did anything good in any of this. But he seemed to draw a line there that Baldwin gleefully lit into these children with a knife and uh, Eccles, according to Skelly's confessions, had no problem with sexually abusing them. Not to mention the horrible beatings that he administered. So, uh... Once again, uh, interrogators basically took, Biskelly's tried to make his escape, but interrogators put him back on the scene as he continued to supply details. Ridge says, okay, now when this is going on, when this is taking place, you saw somebody with a knife. Who had a knife? Again, he throws in the knife, but there's an open-ended question there. He could have said da Damien. And Biskelly says, Jason. Ridge, Jason had a knife. What did he cut with a knife? What did you see him cut? Or who did you see him cut? Again, somewhat open, somewhat defining that he had, Jason, it's Jason. Defining that there's a knife there. Muskelly supplies the detail that it's Jason. Excuse me a moment. <coughs> I may have to cut this short in a bit, but he said, what? Not that short. Ask him. He, he leaves it open. What did he cut with the knife? What did you see him cut or who did you see him cut? In other words, he's leaving it open-ended about what was actually done with the knife, though. That present, Let's throw in the stipulation that, yeah, he's suggesting that some cutting was done with this knife that was on the scene. Miss Skelly, I saw him cut one of the little boys. He was cutting him in the face. Now, Miss Skelly supplied this telling detail 
He submitted his own guilt with his description of the facial wound to Stevie Branch. The police didn't come up with, oh, did he? Did you see Jason stab uh, Stevie Branch in the face with a knife? No. They throw out an open-ended question about what was cut. Miskelly comes back with this detail, which was not known. Well, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say Stevie Branch. He says one of the little boys. He never could keep them straight. Either he's not smart enough to do that, or more likely he just didn't care that much. But he cared enough to feel guilty about killing them. Somewhat guilty about killing them anyway. Uh, he cut one of the little boys. He didn't say which one. Uh, he was cutting him in the face. Now, it's not as if this was public knowledge. The wounds that were been administered to the boys had been incorrectly described in a story in the Commercial Appeal, I think the Saturday after the killings, which would have been Wednesday's the 5th, Thursday's the 6th, Friday, May 8th, May 7th, May 8th, one of those days. Uh, the Commercial Appeal, which is where I was working at the time, reporter James Kingsley, a guy I knew, a uh, good friend of Elvis's, by the way, and also Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, overheard a police transmission from the Arkansas State Police about about the case, uh, got the information down and, and wrote up a story. And Jim would have had somebody rewrite the story because he's not a great writer, but he's a good reporter. He... Uh, great gatherer of facts but he uh the the facts that were gathered were incorrect uh i'm not suggesting he misheard the radio transmission but it may that's possible but perhaps you know investigators at the time were not any more clear than the public about exactly what was going on but anyway the idea was that all three boys have been sexually mutilated and that was in the written up in commercial appeal and that's really all anybody knew at that point Police didn't go out of their way to, police didn't go, hey, let's correct this. <coughs> and there was nothing about being somebody being cut in the face. Now Ridge says, cutting him in the face. All right, another boy was cut, I understand. Where was he cut at? Again, there's a little bit of leading going on here in the sense that Ridge is suggesting, is saying, hey, another boy was cut. He came up with that. I'm not going to suggest that Muskelly came up with that. Ridge did some leading with that. Where was he cut at? Muskelly's answer, at the bottom Which is profoundly inexact, but actually a pretty good description of what actually occurred, despite its deficiencies. Miskelly thus established that he saw two boys cut, one on the face and the other in the groin, details that were not public knowledge and that put him at the scene. You know what? Well, I'm... I'm going on a little bit. For, I was about to wrap this up with that, but I'll go on a little better. But you can see how 
Jesse Miskelly was cementing his own guilt with these descriptions, and they were not being supplied by the police. Ridge, on his bottom, was he face down or and he was cutting on him, or he was. Now, Gitchell, now you're talking to, Gitchell's asked, now you're talking about bottom, do you mean right here? <coughs> and uh, this gets to be a little bit leading, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue the point, except to say that Miskelly's the one who said the bottom, which is very inexact, and needed some clarification. They're trying to get clarification what he meant by this. So Gitchell asked, now you're talking about bottom, do you mean right here? And we're presuming maybe he's pointing at the groin area. Uh, uh, Miskelly says, yes. Gitchell, in his groin area? Uh, Miskelly says, yes. They have to wonder whether he knows what a groin is. And then Ridge asks, apropos to to that, do you know what his penis is? Miss Kelly, yeah, that's where he was cut at. Gitchell, which boy was that? That one right there. Gitchell, you're talking about the buyer's boy again. Yes. Are you sure that he was the one that's cut? That was cut, Miss Kelly. That's the one I seen them cutting on. He correctly, he says, that's the one I seen them cutting on. When he says that one right there, I'm presuming he's pointing to the photo. He correctly picked out Christopher Byers despite, despite the implicit challenge from Ridge. Ridge says, are you sure he's the one that cut? I mean, at this point, Miskelly said, well, maybe I'm not sure. Maybe it was the other one. No, Miskelly says, that's the one I seen them cutting on. And Ridge says, all right, you know what a penis is? Miskelly, yeah. All right, is that where he was cutting? Miskelly says, again, this is a little bit misleading, not misleading, but leading. Miskelly says, that's where I seen them going down at, and he was on his back. I seen them going down right there, real close to his penis and stuff, and I saw some blood, and that's when I took off. So Miskelly again tried to engineer an exit after supplying details such as Chris being cut in the groin, not brought forth by officers. You know, he. there are questions that prompt answers, questions that contain facts that prompt answers from Miskelly. But anybody who says that he, that, the officer, that he knew nothing about what was going on, which is why I hear, I see this all the time, he knew nothing about what is going on. He knew nothing about this. It was all fed to him by the police officers. It's just simply not true. And in fact, he exhibited special knowledge of the crime that only someone who was actually involved in the commission of the crime would know about. Particularly, 
the, you know, he had a, he seemed to be pretty familiar with these woods and he didn't live in that neighborhood, but he seemed to have a pretty good understanding of those woods and describe them at the location of the crime pretty accurately. We don't get into the time of day so much in, in this, but he got that completely wrong. He describes who attacks who. If you look at the uh, <coughs> the luminol readings, yeah, and yes, there was blood evidence found at the scene. It just wasn't really, really obvious to the eye because it was damp, it soaked in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's no suggestion, you know. Oh, they didn't bleed. They didn't bleed here. They were dragged in from somebody's woodshed or a tunnel or a manhole and any of these other ridiculous theories that people will be happy to supply you with. No, they were killed they were killed very right on the banks of the ditch that they were dumped in. And the blood the blood stains were still there a couple of weeks the blood remnants were still there a couple of weeks later when they did luminol testing. And it accords with Miskelly's description of this scene. He describes Chris Byers as the one who's cut on the bottom, who was cut in the groin. He describes uh, the other boy as being cut. The other boy, which is only, there's three boys, would have been Stevie Branch. The other boy would have been Stevie Branch being cut in the face. Very, very, very incriminating. And I don't see how anybody reading just that alone would not go... Whatever else, what other kind of BS Miss Kelly comes up with, and he—it's he, really not that much, and it's kind of—it's really kind of stupid. But as we say, he's not very smart. Let's change the times of day. Give me a break. Oh, <coughs> there's lots of detail in here that's very incriminating. But the most incriminating thing are these facts where he's able to describe the wounds to the boys in, in a manner that's not known to the general public. We have no reason, there's no indication that he was fed these details by officers. There's no indication of the questioning that they're suggesting that uh, a particular location for these cuts. I mean, they're just asking, uh, did he cut somebody? Did he cut? He had a knife. Okay, they threw that in. Did he cut somebody or do something? Did he cut something with a knife? Yeah, he cut this one boy in the face. And there was another boy that was cut. Where was he cut now? That's leading. But then what happens? He says he was cut on the bottom. Maybe we don't like the answer because maybe we don't think the answer is as accurate as it could be, and it's not. But it's... Very accurate. He wasn't. He didn't say he cut him. Didn't stab him in the chest. Cut him in the back. Uh, cut his throat. Slash his face. Scalp him. <laughs> the world of other possibilities you can do with a knife to a human being. He said he cut him on the bottom, and that is what happened. And in that detail was not supplied by police. It was supplied back to the police by Mr. Jesse Muskelly a convicted child killer who will forever remain such. And that's enough for me today. I'm not going to try to do this kind of analysis 
uh, of this, this confession in this manner in one session. But hopefully I'll be back in a week or two or whenever and finish it up. And I hope, I hope the stupid programming did all this correctly. I never can rely on these computers. I don't know about you. Anyway, good night. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again soon.